30 years ago, the famous American theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas, he published what would become one of his most influential books entitled A Community of Character Toward a Christian Social Ethic. In the introduction to that book, he talked about why he was writing it in the first place. My wish, he said, is that this book might help Christians rediscover that their most important social task is to be a community capable of hearing the story of God we find in the scripture and living in a manner that is faithful to that story. Uh, speaking for myself, I find that description of the, the social task of Christians to be a fascinating one. And I think it fits very well with what we find in the final section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, Paul spent the first 11 chapters of this letter carefully explaining to the Romans the fundamental story of the gospel, the story of what God is doing through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then beginning in chapter 12, he starts to explain to them their social task to help them understand what it means to, as Stanley Hauerwas says, to live in a manner that is faithful to that story. In the last session, we discussed how Paul talks about that task in chapter 12, how he says that the most fundamental way in which we live faithfully to this story is by responding with gratitude to the gift of salvation. And then by using the gifts which God gives to us to bless one another. In this chapter, as we turn to chapter 13, we're going to focus our attention on the way in which he describes the Christian community as a community of both justice and love. Uh, before I go any further, however, let me say something about why I'm using these two terms. It's not too difficult to see why I would call the Christian community or say that it's a community of love. All you have to do is read the second part of the chapter, especially verses 8 to 10. The language of love is all over the place. But why justice? Well, as you read through Romans 13, you'll notice that the word justice never once appears. But that doesn't mean it isn't on Paul's mind. To the contrary, I would argue that it's really the primary thing on his mind in this chapter. And I'd argue that you can see that in the way that he summarizes the first section of his argument, the way he summarizes it in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Did you notice what word kept occurring over and over again in that verse? It was the word owed or as you could translate it, debts. It's the exact same word Paul uses in verse 8 when he begins the next section of the chapter, when he says, owe no one anything. And these two verses, which are right at the heart of this chapter, we see the question that is central to what Paul's talking about. The question, what do we owe to one another? And that at 
at its heart, that's a question about justice. At least it was in the ancient world. For as I've already mentioned, when ancient Romans like Cicero, when they thought about justice, they were thinking about each person being rendered or given what they are owed. A just society is one in which each is given what she is due, what she's owed. An unjust society is when those obligations are not met. And that's what Paul is thinking about here. That's the question he's asking. On the basis of the gospel, what do we owe to one another? And what follows, I'm going to try to unpack what Paul has to say by dividing his comments in the first 10 verses of this chapter, dividing them up into two sections. First, what we owe to authorities, and second, what we owe to one another. Now let's begin with the first, what we owe to authorities. Now look at what Paul says in the very first sentence of this chapter. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. Our first duty, the first debt that we owe, is the debt of obedience. We are, as Paul says, to be subject to governing authorities. Christians are not called to be anarchists. We're not called to rebel or resist the laws and authorities of the societies in which we live. And nor should we withhold taxes from those to whom they are due. To the contrary, our attitude should be one of peaceful and obedient submission to the laws, of rendering to authorities the respect and obedience that they're due. As the Apostle Peter instructs early Christians in his own letter, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And why is that? Why do we owe submission to those in authority? Well, actually, as Paul goes on to explain, it isn't really those in authority to whom we owe obedience, but God himself. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And you see, God is the one who has instituted rulers within this world. And so when we obey them, we are in fact obeying God. Therefore, it isn't really a matter of, it's not really a matter of what we owe to authorities, but what we owe to the one who is the ultimate authority. Now that's, that's also why the, the just obedience that Christians owe to those in authority, it's why it has its limits. When rulers demand that we give them our complete and undivided allegiance, or when they attempt to use their power to compel us to do something immoral or unjust, something that violates the will of God, then justice demands that we fulfill our obligation to the greater authority and that we refuse to comply. And you know, early Christians seem to understand this well. It's very common in early Christian apologies, those written defenses of Christian faith that you find in the first couple centuries. It's very common for them to boast about how compared to other Roman citizens, Christians are in fact the most just and obedient community. That they're the ones who obey the laws and respect the emperor and pay their taxes. And yet at the same time, early Christians were also very conscientious in their civic disobedience at times. 
They refused to participate in public sacrifices when told, even the ones that were mandated by governing authorities. They refused to obey when they were instructed to swear their allegiance to the emperor and treat him as if he were a god. And so ancient Christians like Tertullian could say, on the one hand, that Christians were dutiful citizens of the Roman Empire who prayed for the emperor and sought to obey his laws out of reverence to God. And yet at the same time, he could say, I set the majesty of Caesar below God and commend him to God to whom alone I subordinate him. So you see, when Paul tells Christians that they owe obedience to social and political authorities, what he's really saying is that Christians owe obedience to God who has instituted these authorities. And if rulers should go against the will of God, then Christians must remember whom it is that they really owe absolute obedience to. That's what it means to be a just community. It means to give to authorities what you owe them. But as you continue reading Romans 13, it almost seems that Paul undermines his own concern for justice. Because right after he says that you should render each person what you owe them, he then goes on in verse 8 to say, owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, what does this mean? Why would Paul go from saying, give other people what you owe them, and then immediately turn around and add, oh, and by the way, don't owe anyone anything? Doesn't this completely undermine what he's just said? Well, obviously, Paul isn't going to say two contradictory things within a span of a couple sentences. So you've got to ask, what does he mean when he says, owe no one anything? What, if anything, what do we actually owe to one another? Well, in order to understand this, you really need to remember the context in which Paul wrote. Uh, the world of ancient Rome it was a world defined by debts and obligations. Children were indebted to their parents, especially their father, for, for their very life and provision, and therefore they were obliged to obey him and act in such a way that brought him honor. Clients depended on the generosity and protection of their patrons, and therefore, they were obligated to, to pay them back with displays of gratitude and loyalty and public praise. How wives treated their husbands, how workers treated nobility, how citizens treated the emperor, practically every relationship in the ancient world was predicated on what someone has given you and what you owe them in return. And whether or not you pay back that debt properly, that, that was a major concern in their time. In fact, according to the Roman philosopher Seneca, this was the preeminent concern of philosophy itself. Philosophy, he said, teaches us above all to owe and repay benefits well. Now, that's the world to which Paul's writing, a world that's saturated with patrons and clients, with gifts given and always given with strings attached a world where almost every social interaction is a payment or repayment of some debt that is owed. And to Christians living in that world, Paul says this radical thing. 
owe no one anything. Of course, in saying that, Paul's not suggesting that Christians can somehow free themselves of being the recipients of gifts and benefits given to them by other people. He's not telling them to somehow renounce all aid from others and become radically independent. Now, that would be impossible. Instead, he's telling them to learn how to apply the theological truth of the gospel in their relationships with the people around them. The gospel teaches us that God in Christ is the one true giver behind every gift. He then is the only one to whom we actually owe a genuine debt. And that changes how we relate to one another. As the theologian Peter Lightheart explains, recipients of gifts are not indebted to the givers. They do not owe return payment. Givers do not impose burdens of gratitude on their beneficiaries. They cannot use their gifts to lord over recipients. The father and his son cover all debts, supplying all needs according to their riches. If you pay attention to Paul's letters, you'll notice how much this influences his own interactions with people in the letters. Paul regularly received help and assistance from other Christians. But he never allows those gifts that he receives to create any kind of patron-client relationship. He never acts as if he owes anyone anything. Instead, if you notice, whenever Paul receives a benefit from others, he gives thanks for that benefit to God, the one true giver. And here in Romans 13, he's saying that this is precisely how the Christian community should relate to one another. We are not indebted to each other. We are indebted to God alone. And because of that, we are free, free to bless one another, not out of some kind of obligation, not as the repayment of some debt, but simply, as he says, an act of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Of course, what this means in reality is that we're actually obliged to act in very specific ways toward one another. We're obliged to love each other's marriages by avoiding sexual immorality and adultery. We're obliged not to murder because we must care for each other's body and physical health. We're obliged not to steal, which means we have to care about one another's property and material well-being. We're obliged, as he says, to not covet, which means that we must love one another by refusing to indulge in envy and greed. Now, all of these actions toward one another, all of these ways of relating to each other, Paul says, they're all summarized in that commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what we owe to each other. But it's not because we're somehow paying each other back. We live this way because it is the law of God. And to Him, we owe our complete and utter obedience. Because, as Paul said in the last chapter, because our reasonable response, our reasonable act of worship in responding to God's gift to us in Christ is to give our lives, our bodies back in response. 
And what that looks like in practice is living as a community of justice and love. Be subject to the governing authorities and love one another. Why? Because God has given us the greatest gift imaginable in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because we respond, as the prayer in the prayer book puts it, by giving up our lives to His service and by walking before Him in holiness and righteousness all our days.